Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Today's scripture reading can be found on page 1814 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians verses 4, or chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. I'm reading from the New King James Version. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you. God is good all the time. If I don't see you after today, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. I hope you have safe travels and enjoy time with your families. I know for many, though, that's asking a lot because some folks find the holidays especially difficult uh, due to losses. And sometimes those losses are felt even more at a time like this than they might be at any other time. Uh, Usually a Sunday before Christmas, I always wear this same necktie. It was Stephanie's Peepaw's necktie. And uh, about 20 years ago or so, when he passed away, uh, I, I wish I could, I, I got to tell you a little bit about Peepaw, okay? We'll talk about Peepaw, then we'll go scripture. Uh, Peepaw was, he was a salesman. He worked for uh, a company in Nashville, and Nanny would always say that no matter where they were, if they were on vacation in California or Florida or whatever, that Peepaw always found somebody that he knew. Said he would, he, he would talk to a, a, a light pole if it would talk back to him. He wasn't the annoying guy that would talk, but he was just a very, very personable guy. And he was, I guess, in his early to mid-70s. He'd gone to work that day, came home and uh, piddled as Peepaw did, and it pretty quick. A shock to all of us. And uh, uh, I tell you, the one thing that I remember, well, I remember a lot of things, but this one thing I remember um, really, really touched me when Stephanie and I were newlyweds and uh, newly parents, uh, you, you know, you tend to be broke at that stage in your life. And Peepaw sent a check up to us, a uh, $500 check. Now, 21 years ago, that's a, that's, it's still a lot of money, but 21 years ago, and when you don't make much as it is, uh, that, was, that was a lot. And I remember that, and I, I said, you know, I want to be like that for our children, grandchildren, and so forth. But anyway, so I always wear Peepaw's tie this time of the year. We still miss him. Uh, wish that, that our children could have gotten to know him uh, because he really, really loved little bitty Bree. We got a picture of him. I think it's the last picture we took. He's holding Bree. She's got this little fuzzy head of black hair. So I, I know that I, I'm not saying all this to bring the mood down. Please don't take it that way. That's not the goal. The goal, however, is to remind us all that there are some of our loved ones, some of our brothers and sisters that are, that are really hurting this time of the year. And if you're mindful of that, maybe reach out, let them know that you care about them, uh, see if there's anything that you could do for them. 
because I'm sure it's a sentiment that would, that would be well received. So what I want to look at this morning in light of that, in light of grief, is exactly what Paul means when he says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, he's not saying you shouldn't be sorrowful over those who have passed, but he's saying the sorrow is going to be different because of the hope that you have. And if I or you were to go back in time to the first century, and maybe even to the, the church at Thessalonica, and we were to ask those brothers and sisters, um, uh, what, is, what does it mean to be saved? Their answer might differ from ours. For us to be saved, we would say, I'm forgiven of all my sins, and that's true. Uh, we would say uh, something along that line, along the lines of, uh, I've been forgiven of my sins, I get to go to heaven when I die, those things, and th they're all true. I think they might have answered that salvation for them is eternal life. There was a prevailing thought in the ancient world, two prevailing thoughts. One was that when you die, that's just it. So everything that you have, you get in this life. Now, Paul would have said, as he wrote to the Corinthians, and if Christ is not risen, faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And so when he writes to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, which is another way of referring to those who have passed away. But let me show you some of the quotes from the old world, the ancient world, and this very thought of belief. Lucretius wrote, Never, uh, None ever wake again whom the cold pause of life hath overtaken. You're looking around 99 to 55 B.C., very close to the time of Jesus' birth. And this is a prevailing belief not only before the time of Christ, but even after the time of Christ. Catullus, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. Now, imagine you're someone who's lived a, an unfortunate life. You've not had the greatest of things here on earth. If this is all you have, you kind of wonder, why was I even born? Why even live when this is what there is? There is a, a, a letter that was found in Egypt. A portion of it says, I sorrowed and wept over your dear departed one as I wept over Didymus. But really, there's nothing we can do in the face of such things. And finally, a Theocritus, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Now, this is in the year 260, far after Christ. Now, imagine if that was reality. Then yes, sorrow. Sorrow that those who have suffered and gone have done so. There's nothing whatsoever good to look upon and say, ah, but we who are Christians, we have something that, that God has given to us. And it's one of the greatest gifts, speaking of gifts, uh, that he has given us, the hope of eternal life, forgiveness of sins, but hope. Hope that this is not it. And so when we think of a departed one, we can think in different terms especially those who are Christians themselves. The differences we can, we can take is, you know, we know, but we don't really want to say, 
but I would not bring back some of my dearly departed loved ones if I could. I know they are far better off where they are. I always wondered about Lazarus. Could you imagine? You die, you're buried for a few days, and I just, I, I would love to, to have a conversation with Lazarus. What was it like in those days, you know, when you were not here? You know, and I don't know what it is. I can imagine maybe Lazarus said, well, I was greeted by an angel. An angel said, here's your mansion. Lazarus goes, wow, this is nice. And so he, you know, gets settled in. And a few days later, the angel comes back. Hey, uh, li listen, Lazarus, I need you to go back. He had to die all over again. If you think about what we get when we go to be with the Lord, why would you ever want to leave that? Amen. Okay. I believe that. I don't know if you do. So if your Bible's open to 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, let's look at more of this, this passage that, uh, that Paul has. Now, uh, my normal preaching Bible that I have, it is in my truck, which is at home. So I've got a different version. So the language will be a little different from the New King James, but I'm going to try and, uh, try and iron a little bit of it out. Okay, verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep so that you will not sorrow as others who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with a shout with the call of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And the final line in chapter four, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So they had an anxiety about their loved ones who had passed away. They probably thought, well, if you die before Jesus returns, what does that mean? And Paul is likely writing and addressing that very issue. So it's real nice that he ties the bow on this by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So thinking that many of the Thessalonians who had converted to faith in Jesus, many of them, if you read the first letter, they converted from idolatry, from paganism. And so they may have very well subscribed to this notion that once you die, that's just it. And so now that they're Christians, they know they have the hope of eternal life. But the one thing that Paul always preached about was the imminent return of Jesus. And so they're thinking that sometime in their lifetime, Jesus is going to come back. And if Jesus comes back in their lifetime, what about those who have already died? So that's likely what Paul is trying to address. Now, they had a hopelessness because they were formerly idolaters, and some of that thinking may have bled over into their, into their, uh, their Christian beliefs. So Paul would say, it's okay to be sorrowful, but remember that you still have a hope. One of my favorite passages of comfort, for me at least, is Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. And if you're one of those who finds yourself in this position, either brokenhearted or crushed in spirit, I really hope that somehow you feel the closeness of the Lord. Sometimes it's by the people that's in your life. 
Sometimes it's by those who call or come to you to comfort you to be there. Uh, sometimes it's your church family. Sometimes it could be a kind gesture out of nowhere. But the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those crushed in spirit. So it's written in scripture and so I really believe it and I hope you do too. You have hope because of your faith. So I ask you, who is the object of your faith? Is it modern medicine? Governmental leaders? Where do you place your hope? We sing a song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But do we believe that? Do we believe that? Paul would point to the empty tomb. Because that tomb is empty, God will not abandon those who have died in the Lord. And as a matter of fact, to make it even more comforting, those who have died, though they are in Christ, will go on before us. They go before us. We come up later. But I want to point out one huge difference. He mentions the dead in Christ. You and I have to be found in Christ for this to be our hope. We have to be found faithful to the Lord, not perfect. God knows that that's impossible. If it were possible for us to do it how we're supposed to do it, Jesus would have never needed to die. But he did because we can't do it. The law was given. Humanity made the effort through Israel and we fell short. And God says, that's okay. That's okay. I'm sending you a son. And that son came, he lived, we've got a whole testimony of the years of his ministry, and we see what he did, we see what he taught, but the most important thing that he did, as Paul rightly pointed out in 1 Corinthians 15, the things of first importance, that in accordance with the scriptures he died, that he was buried, and that he was raised. His resurrection is our hope, that resurrection from the grave shows that death no more has dominion, but rather life. And Jesus says, I came to give you life and that you may have it abundantly. He gives eternal life. So I want to just iron it out. Faith, we think a lot of times as, okay, here's a set of facts. Okay, I accept those facts. That's not the word faith then. I think trust is probably a better translation because faith, it's very uh, Christianese, right? And so different people define it differently. Uh, and you may disagree and that's fine, but I like trust mainly because trust is, yes, a part of that, the mental assent, assent to, to a group of facts, but it also means if there's actions to take, I take those actions because I trust what you say. So Jesus wants us to have complete and total trust in him, believing in him that he is the son of God. And if we do believe that he is the son of God, he gives us several instructions that I would call initiatory instructions. Confession is one. And confession isn't just a one-time thing. If you read through the book of Acts, when Paul was going around rounding up Christians, note the language, he went around rounding up they who called on the name of the Lord. You don't just make the confession to be saved, but it's one that you constantly make. Never find yourself hesitant to ever say, I'm a Christian. 
Sad thing is, the only thing that some people know about Christians are the bad things that they see in the news or on television. I would never want anyone to associate me with that, nor my Lord. I also don't want to be associated with Christian nationalism. I don't want to be associated with the, the folks who go and picket at the, the, the funerals of fallen soldiers. That's not my Christianity. I'm not perfect at it, and obviously I don't think these other groups are as well. But we've got to look at Jesus and confess Jesus. He's, he's given us the greatest example as to how to live to please God. And you know, Jesus, I don't believe, was a dull person. I know a lot of people think if you're a Christian, you, you know, I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you this way. I hadn't been here a year or two, maybe, and uh, a guy, guy came up to me at a Rotary Club meeting. He said, let me get this right. You preach at Glendale, right? Yeah. Hmm. I said, is something the matter? He said, well, I'm just surprised. I'm, so I'm thinking, uh-oh. What have I done? I said, why are you surprised? Because you have a sense of humor, he said, which y'all do not as of right now. But you see what I'm saying? I think he, he associated uptight. That's what he thought this church was. I'm like, no. I said, these are some of the warmest people on God's earth. And so it's, it's always interesting to me to hear what others have to say. And sometimes you hear things and I go, that's a pretty good story. I couldn't have made it up better myself. Don't think it's true, but you know. But I'm sitting there going, that's not what I want to be associated with. That I'm uptight, that I don't have a sense of humor, that I don't laugh, that I don't smile. But I've ne I, for some reason, I've never forgotten that. So have trust in the Lord, make the confession of faith. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repentance is the hardest part, at least to me, of salvation because it's never ending. Repentance, I love the way that Marshall Keeble told it. I think I've told you this story before. He was walking down the street and had a cane and a little dog came up and was, got a hold of his pant leg and was just going to town on it. You know how they do. And, you know, he tried to shake the dog off and it wouldn't go. And, and he tried to shoo him off, but he finally took his cane and right on the head he said, that dog repented. He turned and went the other way where I was going. And I thought, that's a very good illustration of repentance. Uh, I think also of some of our, our friends and our family who may have once upon a time been addicts. They go through treatment and they go to their meetings to, main, to obtain and to maintain their sobriety. That is a beautiful picture of repentance. Because I think sin has a hold of us like what substances have on those we know that have been addicts. It takes hold of your life. And for some, the more you have of it, the more you crave it, you can't get enough, but you don't realize just how destructive that it is. And then sometimes it just takes that come to Jesus moment. And they go through and they find sobriety. One thing I've noticed with all the addicts I've ever known, they will never refer to themselves as sober. They always refer to themselves as addicts. And so I asked one one time, I said, why do y'all do that? I'm just curious. 
And the answer that I was given from this particular fellow, he said, once you're an addict, you're always an addict. You work every day to maintain sobriety, but you never forget that you're always an addict. And it takes one little slip up and you can go right down that path all over again. And, I, and you look at that in comparison to us and, and sin and, and trying to live righteously, and you can see a, a pretty good comparison. Trust in Jesus, confess Jesus as your Lord, repent, turn away from sin and turn to the Lord. And baptism. Baptism is a, another Christianese word. Uh, for some it means one thing, for others something else. You get a whole room full of people together and ask them, how many of you have been baptized? A lot of hands would go up. Then if you were to say, tell me about it, some would say, well, they sprinkled some water on me, on my head when I was a baby or something like that. Uh, baptism is literally immersion, full immersion. Like the greatest, the greatest visual I can give you is in the ancient world, there were people who their profession was, they dyed garments. So you would get a garment, whatever it was, and now wealthy people often like scarlet or, or uh, a, a purple color. And so those fetch big prices. So you would have this vat of, of water that has dye in it. Many of us have made tie-dye t-shirts. You know how that goes. So they would take that garment and they would completely immerse it or baptize it, literally. So it goes in one thing, and as it's taking hold of that dye, it comes up something completely different. So it is with us, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 6, when we go to the waters, we go as sinful people, but yet we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We go down as one thing, we come up as something else. We come up in Christ, forgiven of our sins. We come up as a new creation. We come up as children of God. That's what it means to be in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you don't have the hope. You don't have the hope of eternal life. I know a lot of times people find it off-putting to talk about hell, but it's a reality. It's not one that I invented. It's one that the Lord has told us about. It's a place where those who have not named Christ will go. It doesn't matter how good a person you are. You can't be good enough and save yourself. You can try. It's not going to work. You may be sincere. You may be sweet, one of the sweetest, most darling people ever. None of it matters if you have not obeyed the gospel and if you're not in Christ. And if you're old enough to understand what I'm telling you, you're old enough to have made that choice. Every one of us, before we become a Christian, are stained with sin. Paul said it in his letter to the Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift of salvation is what God has offered us in return. The empty grave is meaningful. And because we find ourselves, if we find ourselves in Christ, I want you to cling to that hope, especially those who are struggling this time of the year, because this is what the Lord offers us. This is not the end. We're not eternally separated. And you may sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. One of my dear friends, back in December 2015, he awoke in the middle of the night to the curdling screams of his wife because his son wasn't breathing. His, his little boy, 
their firstborn, uh, Daniel, Michael ran in there and was doing CPR, trying to revive his little boy. I think he might have been three or four years old and couldn't. Daniel's birthday passed, and speaking of Easter, on that weekend, Michael took a picture of his son's headstone, and this is the caption that he wrote. If an empty tomb doesn't excite you, you've never wept beside a grave. The utter hopelessness of a world where death is final and a person is no more is a world that places importance on the here and the now. For some of us, here and now may be full of riches and happiness. For others, if this life is all that they have, they've been cheated. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Many have not had it so well in this life, and that's okay because the empty tomb points us to a better hereafter. The empty tomb should comfort our grief and help us in our sorrow. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing that Jesus pronounced. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Many are mourning this time of the year, Father, due to one who has gone on to their eternal reward. So I would pray that you would comfort them, give them peace, and help us all to be mindful of them as well. We who are strong in this moment, help us to reach down and stand up or steady those who are weaker. Because there may come a time that we need it, and we definitely want people there to help us in our hour of need as well. We thank you, Father, for the gift of life, but we thank you more so for the gift of eternal life has been made possible through Jesus Christ. Be near to the brokenhearted. Save those who are crushed in spirit. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you, if you have not yet come to be in Christ, I invite you to come forward to make that life-changing decision as we stand and sing.